Jared's roaming around. Um, <laughs> but when he comes back, we'll have him read Esther three. This is quite a, uh, <laughs> this is quite a chapter. Um, as Alistair Begg calls him, Haman the Horrible is um, uh, alive and active in this in this chapter and uh, and after blood. So, uh, Jared, how about reading and then Papa, if you would pray, and we'll go we'll go after it. Yes, sir. All right, Esther 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, and to the governors all, over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of, the, of King Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Papa, you pray? Yes, thank you. Lord God, king of the universe, uh, thank you for your word. Um, you know, as, as Jared was reading, I was just thinking of this chapter. This is a pivotal chapter in the whole uh, dialogue and... Uh, an important one and uh, again displaying your providence um, Psalm 77 19 says your way was through the sea your path through the great waters yet your footprints were unseen and um, that has really resonated with me this morning we talk about where is is God and, and Esther, he's, you're all over the place. And 
as Bruce pointed out, um, we, we can go back to Daniel and see your footprints. We can go back to um, Ezra and, and Nehemiah and Esther and Mordecai and, and, and see your footprints. And you can see your footprints in the various kings of Babylon and, and Medo-Persia uh, that uh, protected your people, uh, notwithstanding Xerxes. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Be with us this afternoon as we exposit your text and uh, give us your insight and your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Papa. Uh, well, I hope that these times that we get to feast on uh, Esther here are um, impacting our lives in just trusting God's providence. It is an amazing thing that of how providentially God controls uh, everything. I think that's what Alistair Begg said. When we read this chapter, we're left with the question, who's actually in charge here? If we think in terms of power and authority as we read through the third chapter, well, clearly, it isn't Xerxes, despite all of his proud boasts, and Mordecai, as we'll see in a moment, appears to have been overlooked in the king's honor list, as it were. Esther doesn't even appear in this chapter, so she has nothing to say. The Jewish population is under sentence of death. Citizens of Susa are brought justifiably into such experience of perplexity that the whole place is described as being confused. And so, you know, even though, like, Papa prayed... The Lord's name's not, God's name's not even mentioned in the whole book. And he is completely in control, which I just think is so good for us. Because sometime this week, we're not going to necessarily see that his hand is in it, but it is. And uh, we can believe it and enjoy it because, uh, because of that. Papa, before Jared gets into um, some good stuff, what do you have for us? Well, just the beginning, like uh, several chapters before, I think in chapter two, there's after these things, uh, the writer assumes that we we know what after these things mean. Uh, and he begins chapter three the same way, after these things. Um, well, what after what things? Esther has chosen, was chosen to be queen. That's a pretty big deal. Uh, she had won the beauty contest. She's the new queen over Vashti. Um, she's got a big feast, remission of taxes, the giving of gifts, real high point. And then Mordecai discovers this plot, uh, the uh, assassination plot by two dudes, uh, two eunuchs, and, and they're executed. So you think, wow, everything's going well. And, and you then, think Mordecai will probably get yeah, a raise little, little out of some this. Some accolades or something. Not even a... No, not even a hint of that no, right now. Nope. Nope, that's, in fact, it goes right to Haman, right? That's right. Uh, immediately, um, Tyler had some good, Tyler Williams sent us some good stuff on Haman that I have to read. It's interesting. Now, in this narrative, it's meant to give some tension um, as being a, fail, a foil to Mordecai, but an elevation of pride is an affront to God. Boy, are we going to see pride. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that is just such a good, there's certainly a great lesson on us to, to guard against pride and to uh, race to humility. Esther is purposely showing Haman's exaltation here in chapter 3 as a literary means. Only Tyler would know this kind of stuff. Let me read this. This is great. As a literary means of showing his coming demise. This is even represented statistically in the book, Dr. Hakama. 
Now we're barking in your, oh, no. I moved my finger and look what happened. Got to go way back here somewhere. Statistically, even, um, listen to this. Um, chapter 3 has the highest frequency of Haman's name than any other chapter. And interestingly enough, from chapters 5 to 9, his name is mentioned less and less, dropping one use each chapter. So in chapter 3, he's all over the place, and then he keeps losing, losing his luster. Chapter 5 with 11, chapter uh, 6 with 10, 9 in chapter 7, in chapter 8, he's only mentioned six times, 5 in, in chapter 9, and um, the only is chapter 4 where there's only one occurrence. And so uh, he loses his luster and then his head uh, as well later on. And so he, he didn't finish um, this so well. Yeah, what would you say... Um, Jared, on this, uh, like just opening here, what do you, what's really got you? Um, well, first of all, I want to go through some general timeline stuff. This has been about 10 years after Xerxes gave the initial feast for all the officials. So there's been a long period of time. It says um, in chapter one, it was the third year that he gave the feast. In chapter two, it tells us it's the seventh year that he chooses Esther. And in chapter three, it tells us it's the 12th year that Haman is casting the lots day after day. So this is a long period of time here. I think if we look at um, chapter two, we're going to see all these faithful examples of um, Mordecai and Esther. And so it's almost going to be like a a window that we can look through and see the faithful actions of these people. But in chapter three, it, it kind of reverses like you guys were talking about. And I think we can use this chapter as more of a, a mirror to look at ourselves and to see what areas um, we could be improving in and what areas that we need to watch out for and not let sin take dominion over. Well, especially pride, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's an obvious papa. Isn't that a little bit like life, though? Just like you said, there's a sometimes when we look back at your life and there's periods of, of, of gain, or you you feel like there's gain, and then there's then there's periods of loss. And I think those periods are times of growth, the way God grows us uh, through loss sometimes, and 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 then we mature and grow, and then and then we're tested again almost. And I, I think Scripture confirms that God tests us. Yeah, man, there's no no doubt. And boy, are the Jews getting a test here? And Mordecai, um, right out of the gate, uh, Haman shows up, um, and all the servants, and, and, and the king decides, rather than what you kind of expect, that Mordecai is going to get a shout out, and he doesn't instead Haman. And there's so many twists in Esther like this, isn't there? All of a sudden, Haman's the hero out of nowhere. And so sure enough, the king makes a bad rule. Um, all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down to him and paid homage to Haman. And the king had, as the king had so commanded, concerning him. Uh, him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And all of a sudden, we've got a, um, a little dispute here coming on. Now, we don't see Haman catching it, but uh, Haman's servants are like, hey, wait a second, what's with this clown? Why is he not bowing down? What's going on here? And, uh, and here is where we need to come 
to um, Dr. Papa and Dr. Hakama for our historians. <laughs> what is, there's way more behind the scenes here, right, Bruce? There's so much going on. Yeah, there's so much going on. Can you spill the beans? Um, I think when we read these first six verses of Esther chapter 3, we really see the reason Mordecai told Esther not to let her nationality be known. Mordecai knew who Haman was. And Haman knew who Mordecai was because he had been told that Mordecai was a Jew. So Haman knew that Mordecai was a Jew, and Mordecai knew Haman was who Haman was, and so he had told Esther, don't reveal your nationality. Because in verse 1, we're told that Haman is an Agagite. So we're going to go back a little bit to 1 Samuel chapter 15. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, God gave Saul a command. And the command that God gave Saul in 1 Samuel 15 was to destroy the people of Amalek, including the king, including the livestock, including everyone. Mm -hmm. The king, the ruler of Amalek, was a man named Agag, which is the ancestry of Haman. Um, as I was looking through this after uh, Jerry texted me this week and I was looking through this. Um, when Daniel and his three friends were taken into exile, they took the best and brightest and trained them for leadership. Haman would have been in Israel or Haman's parents would have been in Israel about that time. Hmm. So for Haman to be in a position to be promoted as an exile, because he was an exile himself. He was an Agagite. He was not a Persian. He was not a Mede. He was an exile himself. So for him to be in a position to be promoted, he had to be of royal lineage. He was a child of a king, or in the ancestry of a king, Agag. And Saul was given the direct command to destroy the Amalekites. Now, I need to go back a little bit further. The reason the Amalekites were going to be destroyed was because of the way they treated the children of Israel as they left Egypt. Hmm. You're in the Exodus. The Amalekites were attacking them from behind and killing the women and children and the stragglers who couldn't keep up. So they were a brutal people attacking the children of Israel from behind. And God said in Deuteronomy, because of the way they treated my people, they will be destroyed. They will be judged because of the way they treated my people. That judgment came about under Saul. That judgment was completed under King Hezekiah. Saul did not completely destroy. But we're told in Chronicles... They were destroyed under Hezekiah. Haman would have been a remnant because he had been taken out. And he was in a position at this time, and because he knew his ancestry, he was in a position to say, you know what, not only do I hate Mordecai because he's not bowing down, I hate the Jews because of what the Jews, in his eyes, what the Jews did to his people. So that helps us to understand. Yeah. Insight into where 
Haman was coming from and why Mordecai said, Esther, don't reveal your nationality. Yeah, uh, that makes great sense. And doesn't that, because you say, wait a second, aren't you overreacting a little here, pal? Right? That's what, when, he, when, Haman, when uh, Mordecai doesn't bow down, and then he wants to annihilate everybody, but that helps us, Papa. Well, yeah. you know, and, and, and that's, a, that's a great history lesson right there. But, you know, this thing goes even further back. You know, Amalek was a son of Esau. So this goes way back, a thousand years or more. So you have to this, this tension and both Mordecai and and uh, Haman would have been familiar with that. Yeah. So, Jared, any of your points here that you would like to make, uh, like one to one to five? Um... Yeah. Um, going off of what y'all are saying, it says in Exodus 17 that Israel would have war with Amalek from generation to generation, mm. and that God is going to utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven so it's interesting that like you see traces of it throughout the old testament but this is one of the final times that this big feud is going to come up and god brings it up through this this command from xerxes where xerxes says you have to go bow down to haman that's how god brings the feud providentially back into the picture again and mordecai says i can't do that well and it's not just bowing down it's paying homage prostrate almost a worshipful Mm. um, style rather than just the normal bowing I don't think that anyone would object to bowing before the king or queen just like we do to Queen Elizabeth or whatever but this was you prostrate yourself that that's goes back to uh, to uh, Daniel again and Shadrach Meshach and Abednego failing to honor the king with the statue because of the statue and then you know they get persecuted as well and we sure see Haman and uh, just as a picture of his pride absolutely is filled with fury Um, Jared thoughts um yeah we know we know from reading the Bible that we're not to submit to the governing authorities when it calls us when it brings us into conflict with the will of god like if if the government is calling us to sin then we cannot obey men um rather than god in this area and i think the picture that mordecai gives us it says in in verse four when they spoke to him day after day mordecai is showing himself to be faithful over time and i think this is what the Christian walk calls us to do. He's like the house that's built on the rock instead of the house that that is built on sand. He knows how to endure over time. And this is what the Christian walk is like. It's not going to be a single raindrop falling on your house. It's going to be a constant series of storms that test us and that make us want to, you know, give in. But this is where our faith is is strengthened. Right, good. Mordecai passes in with flying colors on that part. Shows a lot of patience. Yeah, he does. Yeah. And Haman is uh, in a fit of rage, um, and uh, he is an easy guy. When you read this, the writer is of the, the narrator of this book, and certainly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you really get a dislike for Haman, don't you? Like, that's, I think, about as much as anybody in Scripture, you know, from a little guy when we would read when mom would read to Haman about 
Esther and Haman, and when we were growing up, you got to, it's like, man, I don't like that guy very much. He's he's a bad he's a bad guy. Go to the Halloween store and buy some of those little rattlers they use at Purim, so we got all. Yeah, every can time you tell Hayden's us how that works? Out, we go, yeah, is that what they do? Right, I think so. Unbelievable, Papa! I can't believe you know that kind of stuff. <laughs> but he disdained to lay his hand on Mordecai, verse six, alone. So they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, and Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And Papa, now, you got some insights on verse 7 here that are pretty fascinating. Could you read that verse and then talk about um, what's all happening with this casting There's a lot lots. in verse 7, Jerry. Um, first of all, um, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but your Bibles matter. What they say matter. Um the ESV, I think, which we're using, says in the first month, which is the month of Nisan and the 12th year of King Xerxes, I say Xerxes, they cast per, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So Nisan's the first month, and that's actually the month of, of Passover. And Adar is the last month in the spring of the year, February, March, and that's the time where they normally observe Purim. Uh, the NIV, though, uh, says in the 12th month of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the Pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month, and the lot fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar. That's not incorrect. But you don't see the day after day, month after month, searching for that right throw of the dice. So, yeah. And so what's going on here? What is he really after, and why use this whole lots deal? I think he wants to, he, he has this bitterness and hatred for the Jews. He wants to eliminate them, but he wants to make sure he gets the right date that the gods are propitious. So he keeps on. It's, it's like you keep throwing the dice until you get what you want, mm -hmm. in essence. Yeah. And so that's what happens there. And certainly you were quoting uh, Proverbs most of this week on uh, God's the one that controls this kind of thing. That's right. Let me, if I could, I want to read what Spurgeon says about this process. This is really cool. Um, Papa has 36 pages here. I do, I do. The lots, now get this, this is our, our man Spurgeon. The lots were cast for the various months. I'll read it slow. But, a, but not a single fortunate day could be found till hard by the close of the year. And then the chosen day was the 13th day of the 12th month. That's also the date that the Jews today observe Purim. On that day, the magicians told their dupe, or fool, that the heavens would be propitious and the star of Haman would be in the ascendant. Truly the lot was cast into the lap, but the disposal of it was of the Lord. See ye not that there were eleven clear months left before the Jews would be put to death, and that would give Mordecai and Esther time to turn around, and if anything, 
could be done to reverse the cruel decree that they had space to do it in. Yeah, interesting. It, isn't that amazing? It's another year there. It's one of the well, that's com- another year and then another year because the once, you know, he, they, he casts the lots for a year before he goes to the king uh, with this decree. Every and then day. there's another year. So, yeah, they're buying time. Yeah, they sure are. In fact, uh, this commentator said prior to chapter three, Haman was nobody. Thus, when three seven is read by the narrator, the author, uh, by the intentional choice from day to day and from month to month is choosing to showcase who is really in control. Once again, when it doesn't look like God's in control tomorrow, he still is in control, whether it looks like it. I love that. It seems that this inclusion is showing that Haman the horrible is so consumed with his own pride and his authority, and that he is willing to cast lots every day for a year until he gets the desired outcome. When one casts lots in the ancient Near Eastern world, it's essentially always on an act of faith in their deity, just like you said, Papa. The casting of lots is leaving the outcome up to some authority, some sovereign outside oneself, indeed over oneself. But the lot was cast and the outcome was settled. Fate was decided, if you will. Not for Haman. Haman is his own sovereign. Haman... Get it again. Mm. Sorry. Chapter 2. Sorry about that. That's all right. Uh, Haman is his own sovereign. Haman is his own God. Haman does not settle for the outcome of the divine. Nope, Haman is willing to cast lots for an entire year until he got one uh, that he wanted. Any thoughts on that, Jared? Um, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what's going through Haman's mind here when he's casting these lots, but clearly he doesn't understand the weight of his actions. Mm. He's throwing lots to take out an entire group of people, to exterminate them, to uh, annihilate them. And that's kind of how the unbeliever is in their sin. They just don't see how serious its nature is. They don't have any conception of the holiness of God, how God is apart from sin. He can't be touched by sin. But to them, it's just, it's kind of a joke. It's not that serious. I mean, you go through the Old Testament, you look at Aaron's sons. They offer unauthorized fire in in Leviticus, and then fire comes out from the altar and consumes them. Like, this is the the holy God that we're dealing with, and Haman's going to find that he's He's going to face the same fate here in a few chapters. I don't want to get too far ahead, but if you trifle with God's people <laughs> and with God's will, at some point, God will be wrathful. Yes. Well, that's just like going back to the providence of God, how God has supernaturally, ever since the Babylonian, ca- well, ever since the original Exodus, but the, the second Exodus uh, has supernaturally protected his people through pagan kings. Starting with even Nebuchadnezzar, once he turned around and ate grass, he, he, <laughs> he figured out who was in charge. And then the, then the Persian kings, a series of Persian kings. And they used people like Daniel and Esther and Nehemiah and Mordecai. And yeah. God's not mocked. We'll reap what we sow. That's right. Yeah, there's, that's, that's for sure. Look at 8 and 9. When Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people scattered abroad, and this and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. 
their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. So he doesn't admit that they're Jews. He doesn't say that. And he kind of is um, a little bit of a shyster here in how he's trying to um, convince the king that this is a good idea. And so then he adds um, a little bit of money on top. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that it may be put into the king's treasury. So now he's adding some some money and not just a little bit of money, right, Papa? We're talking 300 tons of silver might have been... What are we talking? Well, today I went to Siri, and Siri told me that that was $226,291,702.50. That's a fair amount. She knows that (laughs) kind of stuff. What Siri knows. Yeah. (laughs) Two-thirds. One commentator said it might have been two-thirds of the whole... uh, Budget for the Yeah, the budget. Yeah. Yeah. So that... Income or whatever. Yeah. And one of the commentators said, like, how does Haman have this much money? But it might be that he was just planning when they pilfered the Israelites, it would be all of theirs, right? We go kill the Jews, then we take all their money and we give it to the king if he, you know, so it was kind of all all a plan. Jared, any thoughts on any of that? I mean, I just think it's interesting. Papa and I talked about this week that Xerxes doesn't really see a problem with taking out an entire race of people. Like, he doesn't even seem to investigate the matter Haman just comes up to him and says can we take him out and he he obliges but I mean that's how we are in our sin sometimes we're just we're willing not to you know take the time and energy to actually deal with it we can just you know we're comfortable we don't want our stability threatened at all so we'll just brush it off to the side and yeah Xerxes in three chapters here is getting a little famous for bad moves isn't he already? Like, he, he doesn't do a, a bunch of thinking. Uh, he's in this. not asking many questions. Like, who are these people? I mean, uh, there were some some truths and some half-truths in what uh, Haman told him. Yeah, kind of true. There were that. certain people scattered. Yeah, that, indeed. Uh, the laws are different. That's a half-truth. Maybe they observed the Sabbath, but we know from Nehemiah that the Jews were not very good observers of the law. So... That was probably a half-truth at Beth. They do not keep the king's laws, and that's a lie. I mean, they were good citizens. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, apparently the king cared a little for the truth, but I went, did some history work like Bruce did on today's Jewish population in Iran. They actually fare fairly well. There's 100 synagogues uh, in Iran. That doesn't sound like a whole lot, but... Uh, so there's a large Jewish remnant, believe it or not, they're probably the same remnant that existed back in here, and they were successful. They were successful back then, which was one of the reasons why they didn't go back with the uh, when they had the chance to go back home. And 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 today they're somewhat ses- successful in Iran. Yeah. So that's fascinating. Look at verse ten. Uh, a reminder to what Bruce uh, talked about earlier. So the king took his signet ring from his hand 
and gave it to Haman, the Agagite. Basically a blank check, right? Like, oh, yeah, go do whatever you want to and we'll, we'll do, you know, have your own way. And the son, uh, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews again. So once again, it is no secret that Haman hates the Jews. And this is a deep-seated uh, hatred. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you. The people also do with them as it seems good to you. That is quite the, uh, the king is sort of suit yourself. Do do whatever you, you want to. very passive. Yes, he is. No wonder he lost the Great War. Yeah, no doubt. He, <laughs> he may be, might be part of it right there. Jared, any thoughts? Uh, I've got a question for, for you guys. You guys have gone through a lot of suffering in your life and a lot of trials. And I think the Jews are going through a similar period. What What should our response be when we're going through similar trials go ahead papa just uh, our our faith uh, which is the rock in uh, of gibraltar for for us and it should be um when when you just remember i because my age i can recall the good times and i can call the bad times i'm like paul you know I'm, i've known much and i've known little and and but i still trust God and and however it works out, uh, they all things. Yeah, I I like what you just said there. It, isn't it so? And I really hope that after this series, we're even more like this. But there were things that happened this week, and because God's word does surgery on our hearts, I believe that it came back to my mind. It's like, oh man, I've got to trust the Lord on this. He's sovereign. He's His providential hand is really in control here, even if it doesn't look good. And uh, and I, from the Providence series, and then now from this, I hope this gets really etched into our our thinking because, man, Jared, I think that has got to be the answer. We have tr- got to trust God. We need to pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, even on the um, through the trials, and know that the trials are going to build perseverance and character and hope. And make us more mature and complete in Christ. And God's faithful to do that. He who began that good work in us will carry it on to completion. And we can trust him in that. He's 100% of the time faithful to do that. And he proved that at the cross, right? Because he went to the cross, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not along with him graciously give us all things? All we need for life and godliness and all we need to become more like our Savior. Pops? And, and then rest. Yeah. And, 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 and you, you had some issues this week and with your vehicle. Well. And, and well, but, you know, that, that's where, you know, we, we, we look at this as being something ethereal or something. No, it, it works itself out in everyday life. Mm-hmm. In finances, and marriage, and relationships, and um, and and our employment, and and the, the kind of messages we're sending to other people as a result of what's going on. I had a tenth grade girl when you said that. It reminded me of this week. She was she was really neat. She just said she came up afterwards and said, "I'm just I need the Lord so badly." She said, "I just don't know what someone does when they don't know the Lord." 
He said, well, who do they go to? What do they do? She said, I'm constantly reminded of how weak I am and how I can't do this on my own. And I thought, what a really neat for a 16-year-old young lady. That's amazing. Just, yeah, it really was. It was challenging to me. And she knew how desperate she was for Jesus. And, uh, and Jared, don't you think that that's part of God's design and trials to kind of knock those crutches down uh, that we might lean on and uh, help us to, to lean on him alone? Um, anything you have for us there, Jared, or uh, what's your thoughts? Um, I definitely think it's interesting that Haman doesn't stop with just Mordecai. He wants to exterminate the entire race of Jews. And it's like, why would he go about doing this? Why can't he just take Mordecai out? I think it, it's getting into the nature of how hatred works and how sin festers in our heart. It's, it's, hatred is never content. It's never satisfied. It, it keeps going and it, it spills over. It's, it's how sin works. So Mordecai, or Haman doesn't stop with just Mordecai. That's not going to satisfy him. He has to take everybody out. He doesn't operate with eye for an eye. He's going eye for a whole body here. Mm-hmm. That's really good. And that's not, when you really think about it, that's really not practical. I mean, I can see him maybe targeting uh, uh, Mordecai because of the history between the Jews and the Amalekites. But the whole race of people, I mean, the Persian Empire was known for one thing. It was really an amalgamation of people. I mean, they had people from every walk of life. I mean, from uh, from the Oriental all the way to, I mean, just it was a mass of humanity. And to target one group of people just doesn't make sense unless yeah. it's born out of hatred or pride. Yeah, hatred, pride. Yeah, we're to, in Hebrews to not let there be a root of bitterness. And I think, Jared, you're wise. If we ever have a, a little bit of bitterness against somebody, take it to the Lord. Confess it to him. And, uh, and, and don't, let it, don't let it fester. And then certainly Satan has tried to you know, exterminate the Jews more than once. And so his hand in this as well. Uh, I think we would be amiss to say, um, you know, that he didn't also uh, was involved here. Look at verse 13. We've uh, got the Pony Express back. Look at these guys. <laughs> Letters were sent by the couriers to all the king's provinces. And what are there, 127 of them, right? So there might have been, that probably not a bad paying job riding that horse. <laughs> with instruction to, and, and one of the commentators said, look at how the the words are stacked on each other. That just again to show the hatred. I would have never noticed this, but look at verse 13. By couriers to all the king's provinces and instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one on one day. You know, in one day, this is all supposed to happen. So you just think, oh, this is terrifying. One one thing I, I just realized, I think it was either last night or this morning, they weren't calling on the military to do this. They wanted the people to rise up against people. Mm-hmm. It'd be like, go kill your next door neighbor. Well, what if I like my next door neighbor? I, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be upset if an edict like that comes out. And I, I can imagine these Pony Express riders. Oh no, here comes another one of those far-fetched edicts that I got to deliver to the far ends of this empire. No, that's a really interesting point. The edict was for people to just kill other people. They weren't going to come 
This, you no, this know. one, the Army. Right. Very intriguing. Yeah, Jared? Um, I think this these few verses here, 12 through 14, it they show Haman rising to power, and it's, it's actually very similar to how Joseph rises to power, but mm-hmm. with very different results. And I think this is what it looks like, authority in the hands of an unbeliever versus authority in the hands of a believer. Whereas you have Haman, he takes... He's, he rises through the ranks. He takes the signet ring from the king. And he uses that authority to lord o- over others and to hurt others and to puff himself up. Whereas Joseph is the exact opposite. He he gets the signet ring from the king as well. But his response is to look out for the good of his people. And not just, and not just the Hebrews, but for all Egyptians. Mm-hmm. They all benefited from yeah. the grain. Isn't that good? Yeah, the saving of many lives were those 70 Jews, but then all of Egypt there. That's right. From the, that's a great, Jared, good, that's a great insight. Um, no, I love that. Look at 14 and 15. Papa, can you read those? 14, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all peoples to be ready for that day. That day was the day of extermination. Mm-hmm. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. What a contrast again. Papa, can you comment on that? And I want to hear from Jared on that too. Well, as, as we talked about before, no wonder they're thrown into confusion. Now, Susa was, the cap- was this particular the administrative capital where the, all this takes place. So again, we got a citizen saying, what, you know, what do I, how do I execute this order? Some of the words uh, that I found were confusion, uh, to mill about, they wandered about aimlessly. To, this is a tereso, a Hebrew word, a crowd in an uproar, almost like an earthquake. Uh, and, and, and you can imagine, you know, if you get a, this order from the government, to do something like this, mm-hmm. man. What am I going to do? I'm, uh, you know, how can I do this to my my friends and my neighbors? The Jews were good citizens. I mean, they, I'm sure they had friends, and 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 uh, people didn't want to do this. Mm-hmm. And we probably won't be threatened to be annihilated this week, but there will be plenty again that happens in our life that doesn't look favorable. But yeah, this had to be. You know, from going to maybe relatively peaceful living to all of a sudden we're going to die here, um, you know, the, for the Jews. The only good news, I guess, is it's 11 months away, number one. But still, if you had 11 months, if you were <laughs> told that you were going to die in 11 months, that's a lot you got to do to get First of all, you go through the turmoil and then you've got to figure out, OK, what do we, we do? do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jared? Um, I think the last verse here is really interesting. I want to camp out on it for a minute. It says, The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So I want to read this bit from Ephesians 4, where it says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So I think this section here shows us an example of what a hardened heart or a 
a seared conscious, a callous heart looks like. These guys are having a toast here while the entire city is being thrown into confusion. And this is how, this is how we are in our sin. We, we don't care about the effects of it, and we're just content to, to sit in it. That's really good. And, and what a, how much, again, should we guard against it? And the pride that goes here. I remember Mark talking about this in Genesis when, remember when the brothers throw Joseph into the pit, then they got together and had supper. And I remember Mark suggesting Joseph's maybe screaming from the bottom of that pit, help, help. And they're, you know, past the potatoes. You know, they're just, they're cold toward it. And you see this same sort of that Jared, very well put. Papa? You know, it's 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 insane the contrast because you're building up and you're building up yeah. to the 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 purr, the the fate, the the and then these two are just taking a sabbatical from reality, and you know, not even conscious. I mean, this is the king. Forget Haman for a minute. This is the. King Xerxes. Now he's not the brightest bulb on the tree. We've already realized, but nonetheless, you know he's in charge, and he's allowed this to happen. This obviously, and if the city was in an uproar, like some of the commentators suggest and some of the verbs suggest, they would have been somewhat aware of what's going on in the streets. Yeah, that's right. And uh, Alistair Begg kind of finished by saying. The providence of God are seldom self-interpreting. I thought that was really good. The providence of God, the providences of God are seldom self-interpreting. Don't be disgruntled. It's much easier to see God's hand in the rearview mirror oftentimes than it will be, you know, going into a trial. Um, and I think oftentimes we don't even see it in the rearview mirror. But we just trust that was the right thing. If that's what God did, it was, it was the right thing for us. We do because, you know, we can only look look back and see God's sometimes God's hand, and and uh, that's the purpose, whole purpose of testimony. Sometimes that's right. Nope. So good, Jared. Would you pray for us? Yeah. Heavenly Father, thank you for this this time that we get to come together and read through your Word. I pray that you would continue to give us wisdom to understand it, and you would give us the grace to repent when we fail in a lot of these areas, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Good deal. If you get a chance, chapter four is just as intriguing. Uh, read it for next week.